0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. As most of you know, I'm actually in the middle of writing the book that this podcast is partially source material for. And at the moment, I'm pretty deep in the weeds on chapters about the dot-com bubble, how it happened, why it happened, that sort of thing. And by necessity, I've been going into a lot of economic background for the bubble, And in the course of doing so, the famous chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, keeps coming up. So today's episode is a bit of an analysis episode as I speak with Sebastian Malaby, who is the author of the definitive biography of Greenspan, a book called The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. So listen along with me as I try to get a sense of the role that the Fed chairman played in setting the table for the dot-com bubble. A link to the book that we're talking about is in the show notes. It was published this year, and it's actually been showing up on a lot of year-end top 10 lists for good reason. It's actually quite a bit of a page-turner. I read it in less than a week. So if you want a sense of the last 30 years of economic history through the lens of the life of the one man who is present for all of the major events of the era, check this book out. Quick note, this will be the last episode of the year, so don't look for a new episode until the first week of January or so, but that first episode of the new year will be our first actual chapter episode in a long time. It'll be a chapter from my forthcoming book that will outline the causes of the dot-com bubble. So to set the table for that episode, please enjoy this assessment of the financial history of the 1990s with Sebastian Malaby. Sebastian Malaby, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Good to be with you, Brian. So um, I'm just going to give your (laughs) credentials for the audience here. Um, The Paul Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations, You have been on the editorial board of the Washington Post, you wrote for The Economist for many, many years. Um, But today we're talking about um, a book that you wrote this year, or was published this year, called The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan, and I think it's become the definitive uh, biography of Alan Greenspan. Um, So let's start off with, just real quickly, uh, how did the book project come about?
1: Well, my previous book was a history of hedge fund investing, and that was published in 2010. And so that was the time right after the 2008 crisis, when everybody was thinking about how did finance go so wrong? How could the system blow up and cost so much? Was it because crazy people had invented it? Was it because of laissez-faire ideology? And I wanted to really look deeply at that. And Alan Greenspan was the figure at the center of the making of modern finance. Um, And so through the vehicle of a biography, I have explained why the crisis came to be and how we should think about the future of finance, too. Um, And you got full cooperation from from the man himself? Of course, yes. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. And he agreed to speak to to me. And uh, after 70 hours of recording conversations, I stopped counting. I think for for me it was research, and for him it was therapy. So you you got to know him fairly well. Extremely well. Yeah. And also because I spoke to all the people he worked with, the people who worked for him, his former girlfriends. You know, I really spent five years researching this. Mm Mm-hmm. What was the impression you formed of the man generally? He was
0: a uh, smart man, uh, comfortable in his skin?
1: Yes, um, those two things are true. Smart, comfortable in his skin, deeply confident inside himself Hmm. because he tended to look at data, come to an opinion, which was his opinion based on facts, and really not need to speak to other people about whether he was right or wrong because he had this conviction around his own research that he was right. Mm-hmm. Um, the paradox was, he was very shy in big groups, but very charming and confident in a one-on-one situation. So he was able to have presidents eating out of his hand. He was super persuasive with senators. He, he dated very glamorous women. Um, you know, he was single between the age of 27 and 71 mm. and had a long romantic story. Uh, and yet, when he went to a party or a big, big gathering, everyone said, oh, that guy looks really awkward and shy. So to set the
0: scene a little bit for the audience, um, can we talk briefly about the role of the Federal Reserve? Um, it has this famous dual
1: mandate in terms of the economy, which is? Stabilizing prices on the one hand, mm-hmm. and trying to have full employment uh, on the other. So,
0: bouncing between those two things, but also, what role does it have in things
1: like equity markets? Does it have a role to play there? Well, inevitably, if the Fed decides to allow more money in the system, the money finds its way into assets. It could be real estate, it could be equities, uh, it could be the bond market. Mm At different times in history, different things suddenly become valuable. But to the extent that the Fed is the decider when it comes to the volume of money in circulation, it is by extension affecting the level of markets. Let's begin
0: with the example of Black Monday in uh, 1987, um, which is a crash uh, that by percentage terms in a single day was a greater loss than the crash that led to the, to the Great Depression. Um, Greenspan, it, it's his first year As chairman of the Fed, what what is the Fed's response to um, that nineteen eighty-seven crash?
1: Well, as you say, the market fell twenty-three percent in one day, and the Fed responded by providing a lot of support to the system, and that was a combination of things. So it put out a statement saying, you know, we're here to backstop the financial system, you know, we won't allow the payment system to collapse. Because when that much adjustment happens in equities, what happens is that people who own equities suddenly lost tons of money and they may not be able to repay the bank that they were supposed to repay tomorrow. And if the bank doesn't get the money, it won't be able to you know, extend money to somebody else. And you get this chain through the system. And the most vulnerable bit of the whole system was the futures trading markets and the options markets in Chicago. And there, people had lost extraordinary amounts of money uh, because of the way that the markets had adjusted in this freakish fashion. And so people who owed money because they'd made the wrong bet. Uh, needed to pay the people who had won, mm-hmm. and they didn't have the cash to do that. Mm-hmm. And so the whole payment system in Chicago threatened to break down, and the Fed essentially twisted the arms of the banks in New York, forcing them to lend tons of money to the Chicago futures brokers and to the banks in Chicago to prevent there being a kind of freeze-up in the payment system in the way that it was briefly after the Lehman Brothers crisis. Mm-hmm. So the main aim in 1987 is is
0: to keep the entire system functioning, but It also has this knock-on effect of it backstops the stock market because the the stock market actually recovers in short order. Um, Do we have a sense that there's a lesson that Greenspan learns here that he maybe feels that he can apply going forward?
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, he believed that he had successfully backstopped the system. And therefore, if there were future bubbles, um, and the NASDAQ would be a good example in the late 90s, then, you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world because the Fed could come in and repeat the exercise of 1987 where it stabilized things. And
0: that's a lesson that Wall Street also learns at the same time, that the Fed is there in case things get
1: too crazy. That's right. And, you know, Wall Street traders would say things like, Uncle Alan will take care of us. And, uh, you know, it was slightly too much of a sense that he had their backs.
0: So coming into the 90s, um, the... For the stock market in particular, the 80s is very good, and the 90s is (laughs) double plus good. Um, There's this sort of, it's called the Goldilocks economy in the 90s, where you have this period of low inflation, high employment, and high GDP growth all at the same time, and traditionally those things don't go together. Um, And so does this lay the foundation for this feeling that this is a different kind of economy? Like going into the 90s, does everyone, including Greenspan, start to feel that,
1: well, let's throw out the textbooks, this is, this is new kind of history? Well, some rethinking of that kind was appropriate because what was happening was, you know, unemployment, which normally was thought to be, you know, 6% was kind of the lowest it would go because once you got down to 5% unemployment, it meant that there weren't that many workers looking for jobs. And that meant that in order to attract labor, Companies had to raise wages a lot, and that would feed through into prices and therefore inflation. So there was a sense that if you let unemployment get too low, uh, you would then get inflation, and the Fed would have to cool the economy. And what happened, as you say, with the Goldilocks economy in the 1990s is that unemployment fell. It fell to around 5 and then even below 5%, and yet inflation was nowhere to be found. So yeah. the Fed could accommodate that. So some rethinking of, of, of the normal rules was correct and needed, and Greenspan led that process. And what he particularly understood is that technological change um, was driving this Goldilocks mixture, that because um, you know, technology was making it cheaper to produce things, uh, you could have very low uh, unemployment mm-hmm. and yet not see inflation because the technological productivity boost was keeping down prices.
0: So right, this idea that productivity is sort of the missing ingredient that is that is creating this great economy, and obviously at the same time is when the internet is is going mainstream, the computers are coming into every office and every home. Um, so the that seems to be a logical explanation. You know, the the the, the famous example is you know the proliferation of automatic teller machines. So you would have to, you could maybe have less bank tellers. The bank could make more money, but is it? It doesn't show up in the numbers right away. Correct?
1: Yeah, there was this paradox um, in the mid '90s, around '95, '96, when um, you couldn't see in the official data that productivity was increasing particularly fast. In some sections, like in the service economy, it was actually going down. Well, that's the thing. People didn't know that, though. People you know, looked at the overall number for the economy, because that's what existed. And it was Greenspan who said, this doesn't seem right to me. You know, people are um, producing more, surely they are, because all this technology is there. And furthermore, corporate profits um, seem to be very strong. If they're not raising prices, it must be because their cost of production is going down. Mm-hmm. So Greenspan asked the Fed statisticians and economists to make this um, breakdown of how productivity was doing all across the different sectors of the economy. I think there was something like 300 or or thereabouts different sectors that they sliced the economy into. And when they did that breakdown, they found that in the service sector, according to the official data, productivity per worker seemed to be falling. Mm -hmm. And Greenspan said, give me a break. (laughs) There's no way that a lawyer or an architect or some other service worker is producing less per hour now than five years ago. That's ridiculous. And so these numbers must be wrong. And that's what tipped him off to the idea that the official numbers were wrong. Technology was driving productivity growth faster than anybody realized. And therefore, he could afford to let unemployment fall further and deeper than anyone had thought possible. And he just intuits this. like the, he, he feels that the numbers are
0: wrong in his gut, and he makes the call based on that.
1: It begins with an intuition, but then the intuition is supported by that uh, staff um, statistical sleuthing Mm -hmm. to break down what was going on in each sector and so the intuition was then backed up by hard data.
0: Um, So this sort of provides a rationale for by 96 say um, 95 96 I believe 95 the the market was up 35 percent or something Um, so this provides a rationale that says equities aren't in a bubble there's a logical reason for stock prices to be going up as much as they are.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was always difficult to know um, whether the amount by which stock prices were going up exceeded what could be justified by this technological boost. I mean, good technology justified, summary evaluation of the stock market, did it justify that much? And that was the difficult judgment, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's it's a window on how it's very difficult to understand if there is a bubble or if there isn't. So Greenspan agonized about this, and in the same year that he made this great productivity analysis, 1996, he also, at the end of the year, famously talked about irrational exuberance in the market. So he was trying to say both things at once. And what happened was that the market, uh, when he talked about irrational exuberance, there was a brief moment when the market fell. But then it bounced right back again, and Greenspan kind of backed away from that Anxiety about the love of the market and started to become more of a cheerleader for all this fantastic technological change. Uh, And that's when, into 97, 98, 99, the market really took off.
0: Can we dig into that just a little bit? Um, The irrational exuberance speech, it wasn't accidental. He put those words in there because he wanted to send a message to the markets, maybe cool off a little bit. Um, And so then what leads him to backtrack on that.
1: Well, it's very interesting, and it gets to Greenspan's psychology, um, because he was, I call my book, the man who knew. Uh, He was not, however, always the man who acted. Mm. Um, And so he often understood finance and fragility in finance and where the vulnerability was, and yet to actually take the step of, of, of reacting to it was politically difficult. It would make him unpopular, and he was a very... You know, famous and successful Fed chairman and he was imprisoned by that reputation. He didn't want to risk it. So what he did with this irrational exuberance thing is that he put those words into the speech on purpose exactly as you say. Um, But it was kind of a a non-message message message, uh, Mm -hmm. in the sense that he put the words in but with a question mark at the end. He said, um, how would we tell if the markets Mm -hmm. are entering a period of irrational exuberance? Question mark. Mm -hmm. And so he wasn't directly having ownership of a full-on warning that the market was too high. He was just airing the question. And that enabled him to have some kind of plausible deniability. you know, he could say, well, the market reacted. I didn't really tell them it was too high. I was just raising the question. So what happened was the market, not, not surprisingly, you know, fell because the chairman had raised this worry about maybe market prices were too high. Um, but once it had fallen and it had a chance to sort of think about it, investors said to themselves, well, the Fed chairman has raised a question, but he hasn't told us it's too high. And furthermore, he didn't say he would do anything about it being too high. Mm -hmm. So this is really a green light for us to push up the prices. And so paradoxically, that very tentative warning about the stock market being too bubbly turned out more to be an enabling green light that it could go forward without (coughs) punishment. Uh, And that's pretty much what happened.
0: And building on that every year going forward in the 90s, that he doesn't make any language at all similar, every time he doesn't suggest maybe this is a bubble, that almost creates the
1: tacit understanding that he wants us to continue. Exactly, because he wasn't telling people that it shouldn't continue. Mm -hmm. They thought it should. The other thing that was going on here which plays into it is that this was the period in the history of the Fed when it made this shift and sort of firmed up its view that really uh, inflation was the thing it should be focusing on. You know, in theory and the law it says you should also focus on employment levels as we've talked about and there were some people who thought it should focus on the market prices. Mm. You know, if the market was looking at like a bubble or well maybe you should tighten interest rates, raise interest rates and that'll make it more expensive to borrow so there won't be so much money in the economy and then That'll take some wind out of the, out of the stock market. Um, and in the late 90s is the period when those quibbles about an inflation focus are cast aside mm. and the Fed reduces its sense of its mission to inflation only. And so Greenspan, while he was watching the market go up, was just looking at inflation and saying, well, that's not too high,
0: mm.
1: so no need to do anything. And that enabled the bubble.
0: So it's almost that he's willing to risk an asset bubble uh, because he's more concerned about inflation
1: as his primary directive at all times. Exactly. And so now the question is, why was he more concerned about inflation than about financial bubbles? I mean, price stability is nice, Mm -hmm. but financial stability strikes me as pretty important as well. We learned that in 2008. Right. Uh, And the answer to why... Uh, he decided that price stability was so much more important than financial stability, I think, uh, is that price stability was easier. Mm. Greenspan was a very adept politician. If he defined his mission in terms of something like price stability, which he could deliver, he would be a hero. He would announce a target, he would deliver the target, he would look smart, and there would be Alan Greenspan t-shirts. By contrast, if he had tried to fight bubbles, which was something that he had advocated himself before he became FET chairman, um, it would have been tough, and he might have made it the call wrong. He might have been too early, as he was. In fact, in 1996, when he said irrational exuberance, it was way early to call a bubble. Uh, and you know, he preferred to do the thing that was easier rather than the thing that was hard.
0: So, in the in the 21 months after the irrational exuberant speech, the Fed only raises interest rates one time. So this is 97, 98, the height of the beginning of what we call the, the dot-com era. Um, and so this c- creates a, an environment for these frothy stocks to start to go public, and, and, and it enables them to come to, the, c- come to market because the market is
1: so frothy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the tech bubble in the 90s was also driven not just by plentiful money and by monetary policy, it was also driven by a kind of cultural euphoria about uh, the internet and that whole buzz around Silicon Valley that there that, that was a sort of extraordinary, um, you know, I don't know, mania. I mean, it, yeah, and, and, and history teaches us that, that these manias come and go. It could be tulips famously uh, in Holland in the 17th century, um, and it can be at other times some commodity. And, you know, in, in the 1990s, it was this mania for tech. Um, so you can't blame Alan Greenspan for that. But what you can say is that these bubbles can be constrained if it's tough to borrow money, because money borrowing is, the, is, the, is sort of the fuel of any kind of bubble. You know, you need to borrow money if you're going to buy those extra stocks uh, for your portfolio. You need to borrow money if you're going to um, set up another Internet company. Uh, and, 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 you know, Greenspan just made borrowing too cheap, and that exacerbated the problem.
0: So I've said on the show before, people don't remember this now, but 97, 98, 99, it wasn't all up. There were some serious bumps in the way. There's the '97 uh, so-called Asia flu. Um, Russia defaults on its debt. There's a the long-term capital management issue. And in in these crises, Greenspan does cut rates, sometimes quite aggressively, um, because the market is falling. And then every time he cuts these rates, in retrospect now it looks like he saved the market, and the market goes back up.
1: Precisely. And you know the best example of this is in the summer and fall of 1998, when first of all, Russia defaulted and caused a big shock to the global financial system. And then on top of that, in the backwash, this big hedge fund, long-term capital management, um, you know, uh, blew up. And long-term capital management owned such a big portfolio of complicated derivatives trades that there were certain aspects of the credit markets which were freezing up and would would really dysfunction if it had had to, you know, if it went completely bankrupt and therefore had to sell all its positions in one day, it would have caused a total freeze up in some markets. And so that was a truly scary moment. And the Fed responded both by brokering a deal where banks put money into long-term capital management so that there wasn't a fire sale of its assets, but secondly also the Fed cut interest rates three times Uh, in the space of about uh, two months, in order to cushion the system against the backwash from this big shock. And I think that, you know, one cut was certainly fair, two was debatable, three was too many, and then what was completely indefensible was not to take those cuts away again Mm. uh, once the market stabilized. Because what this proves out is the markets
0: already believing that... uh, if anything happens, Uncle Alan will come in and save us. So the, in that 1998 period, it almost causes the euphoria of 1999 because everyone feels like all bets are off. We're going to be safe. We can do whatever we want. And, and Alan wants us to do this.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, so there was a sense that your downside risk, if you were an investor or a trader, your downside risk was protected by Uncle Alan, uh, but he wasn't going to get in the way of the upside. If, if the market was taking off, he wouldn't stop that.
0: Um, So, again, I've said on the show before that the actual mania is a quite constrained period of time, mostly around 1999, the first half of 2000, when most of the so-called dot-coms come public. But it's in 1999 that he does start raising rates again. Um, Do we have an understanding of, in 99 is he finally starting to think this is a bubble that we need to be concerned about or does he never really get converted to worrying about the bubble?
1: I think he understood that um, some of these valuations in tech were going uh, to the extreme, but he, he, he decided that that was not going to be his focus, that because of the 1987 precedent that we spoke about, you could clean up after the bubble burst if it did burst. Um, and. He decided that trying to get in the way of this locomotive of the tech market would be like standing in the way of a locomotive, you'd just get flattened. Um, and so he, he basically decided that policy, you know, monetary policy was not going to respond to that. And instead, you know, he was focusing on the level of inflation. And he was saying, look, inflation isn't very high, so I can tighten interest rates very slowly and very cautiously, and it doesn't really matter. And I think that's the mistake. You know, if there's a sort of policy message from my research on Alan Greenspan, it is that central banks need to be frightened about financial instability. And if there's an obvious bubble like there was in 1999, you don't just sit there; you do something.
0: So, in your final analysis, I guess, um, in your opinion, how much credit, blame, whatever word you want to use should we assign to Greenspan for the 90s.com bubble? Obviously, he's not creating these technologies, but how much can we say he enabled this bubble to occur?
1: I think we can say that. And I think you know, um, the fact that he cut interest rates three times in late 1998 and then didn't take back those cuts for months into 1999, and so in that period, as you rightly say, when the market was really, uh, you know, going crazy, and the you know the IPOs of companies which had no profits at all uh, were really happening, you know, Priceline.com and so forth. That period is when you know monetary policy was super loose because of the effort to cushion the long-term capital management shock. And if they had taken back that, you know, they called it insurance when they cut uh, rates after long-term capital management. It was supposed to be insurance against market instability. The markets had stabilized by the end of 1998. So why not, you don't need the insurance anymore. And they should have immediately, you know, pushed rates back up at least as much as they cut it by. And they didn't, they took their sweet time and, and that's when things got out of hand. And so you're suggesting that because
0: he felt like it was too politically difficult in 1999, to step in front of the market, it would have been incredibly unpopular. That he he just stepped back and did nothing, and then because if he had done something in earlier in 99, it may have made him unpopular, but it might have had the bubble not get as large yeah. and not have
1: as much of an impact when it pops. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the Fed did tighten during 1999, just too slowly, and as it continued to tighten into twenty into 2000. Mm-hmm that's when the market, the, the NASDAQ, you know, peaked and started to come down. So in the end, the Fed did tighten, but you know, if it had done the same thing six or nine months earlier, you wouldn't have had that final run-up in the NASDAQ, and so the pain of the crash would have been much less extreme. Uh, and that would have been a smoother economic growth path for the economy. And the, the whole point of a central bank is precisely to smooth the growth path. And not reacting to the NASDAQ in 1999 was a failure to smooth the growth path. It was enabled by this focus on um, interest rates, and that, that, I mean, sorry, focus on inflation. uh, And and that doctrine of inflation targeting, very much um, academically created by Ben Bernanke, by the way, uh, was what gave permission to ignore the dangers in the tech bubble. but I think in a sort of deeper sense, uh, although there is that academic legitimizing that goes on with Bernanke's work on inflation targeting, it's the Greenspan political instinct uh, not to do something that would make himself unpopular, uh, which is also at fault. Uh,
0: a couple final questions. Um, after the bubble bursts, there's a recession that is caused by the bubble bursting, uh, combined with the 9-11 attacks. Um, and so the Fed lowers rates aggressively to help cushion against this recession. Um, those rates, I think, are the lowest that they ever got under Greenspan. Is it fair to say that that then lays the groundwork for the next bubble, the housing bubble in 2000s?
1: Yes, I think it is fair to say that, uh, precisely that You know, the Nasdaq burst, uh, that bubble burst, and that was traumatic for the economy because – all of a sudden investment spending uh, which had been very high during the euphoria about new technology of course companies want the new technology so they're investing in you know everything from uh, you know under the ocean uh, cable broadband uh, fiber optic broadband to to you know IT systems in their headquarters so there was this huge amount of corporate spending on the new technology uh, in 1999 and their balance which was fueling growth because that spending translates directly into demand for goods and services. Um, and and when, you, when, when, the, when the bubble crashed, um, all of that corporate spending sort of dried up. So you go from a lot of investment spending to very low investment spending. And to counteract that, the Fed had to cut interest rates a lot to stimulate other kinds of economic activity, to make up for the loss of investment. And the other kinds of economic activity included principally real estate, and so the Fed, having pricked and deflated belatedly the tech bubble, had to inflate the real estate bubble. So I do think that one thing led to another, which is another reason why, you know, um, Ben Bernanke wrote a very uh, nice and thoughtful, uh, long comment about my book, um, which he published on his blog at Brookings. But you know, he doesn't agree with some of my conclusions, which are, after all, critical of what he did. And you know, he would say, the economy was fine after the Nasdaq. You know, We cleaned up, we cut interest rates and so everything was fine. And it's true that there wasn't a deep recession after the Nasdaq burst. So some people think it was fine. My view is it was only fine because the Fed cut interest rates to 1% and held them there and then did forward guidance persuading the markets that even the long-term bond rate wouldn't go up. And with all that stimulus, you got another bubble. So it wasn't fine. How much do these two bubbles – that seem
0: obvious in retrospect. Obviously we have to caveat that maybe not obvious at the time. How much does that, do you feel that will affect Greenspan's legacy? What, how, how will history think of him?
1: You know, I mean, Greenspan went from the hero of the great moderation in this period of, you know, Goldilocks economy we discussed. He went from hero to zero after 2008. And the reappraisal of his reputation was more dramatic than anybody else in American public life that I can think of. I mean, it was extraordinary. Uh, And so his legacy has been tarnished by the double bubble, the NASDAQ plus the subprime, and particularly the subprime. Uh, And I think, you know, that's sort of obvious and appropriate. You cannot be the most powerful economist in the world and then not have responsibility when the market collapses in 2008 and the world economy... Has its worst convulsion since the 30s. Now that said, what I think is interesting is what was the nature of the mistake? Was it a mistake about regulation, which some people say that they should have regulated subprime more? Uh, Or was it a mistake of interest rates, where if there'd been less loose borrowing, less money chasing all this real estate, the prices wouldn't have gone up so much? And uh, this is another place where I disagree a bit with the central bank conventional wisdom embodied by both Bernanke and Greenspan you know Bernanke would say it's all about regulation I believe that regulation in politicised Washington is very hard to make stick and therefore that you have to use interest rates sometimes to fight excessive euphoria in markets Uh, and so I, I think Greenspan did make a big mistake in the end of his tenure should have had a reputational correction it probably was too much of a correction because after all he'd been a very successful Fed chairman for a long time um, but that the interesting thing is that the nature of the critique of his mistake, I think, is wrong. Uh, you know, we should critique him for interest rate policy, not just for regulatory policy.
0: Uh, one final sort of side question. Uh, how much did Greenspan himself use technology? Did he use computers? Did he use email?
1: Yeah. Um, he was more computer-friendly, certainly by a long shot. Than his predecessor Paul Volcker. You know, Paul Volcker, if the staff presented him uh, with a printout, uh, you know, from a computer, he would say, "I don't want a printout." You know, uh, uh, Greenspan was kind of the opposite on that because, in fact, he had had. He was, you know, very early in having owning a mainframe IBM in the sixties, and he ran a consulting operation, an economic forecasting operation, in New York. And he invested in in technology early on, and he used it um, to help his forecasts. And he used it also, by the way, to crunch opinion poll data for Richard Nixon in the 67-68 campaign and provide Nixon with a better understanding of uh, opinion around the country. So Greenspan was totally happy to use computers. He had screens on his desk. When I used to go visit him, when I was doing my research, there would be some trading screens as well as a Mm. normal computer. Um, does he write his own emails? No. When I get an email mm-hmm. from him, his assistant has written it. Um, but, I mean, he is 90 years old.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, again, the book is The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. And if basically you want an amazing primer on you know, the last three decades or so of global economic policy, you, you can't do better than this book. Um, Sebastian Malaby, thank you for coming on the show and helping me think through uh, the dot com bubble and, and Greenspan's role in it. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at Brian mcc. Thanks for listening.